Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, July 19th, 2010. Oh, man. This is almost going to be like a Friday light, but it's not. It's, i got two topics I want to cover today, and I want to cover them in depth. More details here in a moment. Something a little different. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And as a result of it, we've got to do some cleanup work. Why? Because what's at stake is the clear proclamation of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ's vicarious death on the cross. Uh, when uh, people uh, in the church start listening to false teachers, people who are teaching strange and exotic doctrines, new things that have never been heard before, uh, what what gets lost is the clear proclamation of the forgiveness of our sins and as a result of it, uh, people remain in their sins and remain under the wrath of God. This is not how we want to love our neighbors, by allowing them to go off into eternity without hearing the proper uh, the biblical gospel proclaimed to them and, call, and calling them and all sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Unfortunately, one of the most dangerous places to be nowadays uh, is the church. So we do the politically incorrect work here. We do the job that a lot of folk are just a little bit nervous at doing, and that is, is uh, basically saying, hey, wait a second, what that guy said isn't biblical. What that guy said isn't the biblical gospel. And as a result of it, we must reject it, and we must instead say that's false teaching and we've got to then proclaim the biblical gospel. Uh, interesting thing happened today on Twitter. Uh, I was watching the Twitter stream. That's one of the things I do here as I'm uh, doing my production work and preparing for the program. And uh, if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, then you know that uh, I, I have gotten in the habit of regularly sending out updates. And uh, I use a, a program by the name of TweetDeck. And as part of my reading and uh, writing regimen, when I come across stuff that piques my interest, I'll queue it up in TweetDeck so that it'll get released uh, later on. In fact, if you were to take, you know, look at my copy of TweetDeck, you'd find that I, I have uh, 
I've got a lot of stuff already queued up really through the whole week. And so uh, that way there, there's a regular, you know, I'm regularly sending stuff out that I think that would benefit my listeners. Well, something happened today. It was kind of uh, t- completely unplanned for, but I, uh, one of my friends, uh, he goes by the, uh, he's got a handle on Twitter by the name of uh, Lunchbox. And uh, he, he, you know, he, I saw one of his uh, Twitter updates come across that uh, that w- that had the hashtag not the gospel. And then when I went to it, I noticed that there were some people out there who kind of spontaneously created a hashtag and were basically <laughs> saying this is not the gospel. And then there was another hashtag that sprung up that uh, a hashtag is the gospel. And uh, and I thought, boy, this is a great opportunity to. Uh, you know, to contribute, you know, to this uh, growing hashtag as, you know, actually both of them. And so if you've been following me on Twitter, you've seen a bunch of stuff that's gone out that says is the gospel and is not the gospel. And uh, I just thought it was a great opportunity to clarify some things and proclaim the gospel and uh, and get in some people's faces. And of course, if you uh, if you actually follow those, if you uh, were to look at those who send me tweets on Twitter, then you realize that uh, the the biblical gospel that I proclaim is not without controversy, and I get shot at a lot, uh, especially on Twitter. And uh, and so there was uh, a few people who tried to take me on when I was challenging their false gospels and called it not, you know, not the gospel. Particularly, uh, loving God and loving neighbor, that's not the gospel. And, uh, in fact, that's the summary of the Mosaic Law. That is the summary of the Mosaic Law. I put out a tweet to that effect. And if you were to follow me, if you're following me on the Letter of Mark blog, which is uh, really where I'm I'm doing my uh, blogging nowadays, I'm in the process of slowly retiring the ExtremeTheology.com website, uh, which, kind of, you know, I've, I've said this before, I'll say it again, it represents my theological and apologetic writing up to a particular point and uh letter of mark uh picks up from there and uh and represents you know kind of where i'm at right now it's not that my theology's changed i i like to think that i've uh matured a little bit um although some would argue <laughs> no that hasn't happened at all Anyway, so uh, I'm writing at Letter of Mark, and if you want to follow my blog there, it's letterofmarkmarque.us. Um, I put up a post there that says, Loving God, or the Great Commandment Will Not Save Anyone, something to that effect. And uh, that's on today's edition of Letter of Mark. Worth the read because um, it's uh, two-thirds scripture. I mean, it's, that's what primarily what it is. And uh, I was thinking about this over the weekend. Uh, Rick Warren, he talks about... You know that the the mission of the church is the great commandment and the great commission, and no, it's not. It's proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. The great commandment condemns us; it doesn't save us. And uh, and just saying the, that you subscribe to the great commission doesn't say anything about the message. And so, uh, you know, the message that we've been given is the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross, and that's what we defend and proclaim here on a daily basis and that's for your benefit and uh and it's the way in which I serve you uh my neighbor and love you enough to tell you the truth and to uh, do the research and the hard work that uh that is required nowadays when it comes to discernment and encouraging you to dive into God's word and even compare what I'm saying in the name of God to the word of God 
Okay, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We've got two things that we're going to do today. Two. And it, you can almost say it's Friday light, but it's not it's not it's not Friday light cuz Friday light we only handle one topic. Um let me let me tell you what the two topics are and then we'll uh go from there. Um I, I don't know and I know some of you all probably watch the Glenn Beck program. And um, I I watch it from time to time, and I got to tell you, it's it's one of these programs that for me is a little bit depressing and difficult to watch. And uh, the reason there's the reasons for that are you know multiple fold, but uh, something that has been a recurring thing as I've begun to watch this program has to be addressed on this program, and that is is that when Glenn Beck uh, wanders into uh, biblical themes and wanders into religion, you got to be very careful. And the reason you have to be very careful is because Glenn Beck is a Mormon. Now, that's not to say that Glenn Beck is not a nice guy. It's not to say that Glenn Beck is not a good American. He he's, he's a fine patriot. He is a fine patriot. But when it comes to his discernment of things that are the Christian faith, we've got some severe problems. Mormonism teaches uh, what's called the law of eternal progression, which basically states as uh, as man is, God once was, as God is, man can become. And uh, the Mormon missionaries are not going to teach you this on their first visit, uh, nor are they going to teach you this probably in any of the visits they make to your house. Instead, Mormon missionaries nowadays, I think, uh, take great pains to train to train themselves or they train them to to look like basic grassroots everyday evangelical Christians uh when they are anything but that and uh, as a, so as a result of it they kind of the, the Mormons kind of go with the uh, we're going to boil the frog slowly because if we stick you in the uh, pot of hot water uh, you're going to realize what the problem is and you're going to jump out and so uh, I learned Mormonism from Mormons. I the the Mormons taught me their religion, and so um, that I mean my my wife and I both actually that's where we learned Mormonism. And um, so it you know Paula who uh, who was a regular contributor on my Facebook wall, uh, she she pointed out that she her and her husband had been talking with the Mormons, the, the missionaries been coming to their door, and she's uh, and and all of their they they explained the biblical gospel to them, and they all nodded their heads and said, "Oh yeah, we're a uh huh yeah, that's what we believe." You have to dig a little deeper, and uh, what I would definitely consider getting if you don't have a copy of this, if you're if you've ever studied with the Mormons and you don't have a copy of this book. Uh, the thing you need to get is a book called Doctrines and Covenants, and uh, you you know, you got to understand from the Mormon point of view, the Bible is not solely inerrant; it's full of errors, and so they will they believe in the King James Bible, which is difficult to read, the Book of Mormon, uh, and then doctrines and uh, doctrines and covenants, and you know there's other revelation that they tack on to the Bible that they consider to be valid. If you get a copy of Doctrine and Covenants, you're going to need to find uh, the book in it called the Book of Abraham. And uh, this is an interesting book because it, the Book of Abraham, um, Joseph Smith, if you know the story, uh, there was a passing, you know, passing through the area of the woods that he was living in at the time was a traveling Egyptologist who basically, uh, he, you think of this would be antiquities theft is what we're talking about here. He was passing through the United States, and um, Joseph Smith purchased from him 
um, uh, Egyptian papyri, and I think also a mummy, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Joseph Smith, uh, you know, unrolled this e- uh, Egyptian papyrus uh, and uh, claimed that it was the, written by the very hand of Abraham himself, and and he, you know, through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit and you know, spirit, you know, the spiritual gift of translation, claimed that he translated this papyrus that was written in the very hand of Abraham, and it became known as the Book of Abraham. And this is one of those um, parts of Mormon scripture that uh, they are not going to take you to immediately. But this book teaches that there are many gods, not that there's one. I mean, this is some crazy stuff. And what's funny is is that they actually found uh, in a library, I think in New York back in the 60s, uh, the uh, copy of the book of Ab- you know the, this papyri that uh, Joseph Smith, uh, the original papyri that Joseph Smith tra- quote translated uh, the uh, the book of Abraham from, and it turned out to be nothing more than the Egyptian book of the dead, and so Mormonism it, it, this is a this is a religion it's a cult that goes out of its way to mimic and look like biblical Christianity. And it's not biblical Christianity. It has a false Jesus. Their Jesus is, uh, you know, the, the spirit brother of Lucifer, uh, conceived by uh, sexual relations uh, between uh, Mary and uh, and the God, the Father Elohim, who lives somewhere up at Starbase Kolob. I mean, this is, you know, this is, uh, it's not Christianity. And the thing is, is that. You have to know where to go to get the real skinny because the Mormon missionaries are not going to teach you this up front. Now, this is the religion that that Glenn Beck subscribes to. So um, you, you've got to be real careful when you're listening to Glenn Beck. And uh, so today I'm not going to be reviewing Glenn Beck. I just put that out as a word of warning. But recently on Glenn Beck's program, uh, and you got to understand that Glenn Beck has a team of researchers that work for him, and um, and they are really good at what they do at, at digging stuff up uh, to help him out. And one of the things that uh, Glenn Beck has come up against is is basically uncovering what's kind of the beating heart of uh, of liberal politics. And uh, you know, vis-a-vis uh, Obama, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, and others, and uh, you know what's go. And I mean, this uh, this fits with Jim Wallace. This absolutely fits with um, uh, Brian McLaren and those in the Emergent Church. Is you have in it beating in their political hearts is a religion uh, known as liberation theology. It's Hegelian. It's uh, it's Marxist. I mean, it and th- these guys have latched on to the irrational philosophers that uh, really helped pave the way for fascism. I mean, this is it's a powerfully deadly cocktail, and it and it, what this stuff teaches is absolutely deadly. It's a false Jesus, and, and it's every bit false uh, biblical theology as uh, as Mormonism. So you got to be careful when you're listening to Glenn Beck. And um, anyway, uh, the, it, somebody sent me a, a video, and uh, this this is a guy by the name of James Cone. James Cone is one of the modern day uh, creators of Black Liberation theology, and Reverend Jeremiah Wright um, 
firmly is a follower of this guy. And why is this important? Well, this is important because Barack Obama um, attended Jeremiah Wright's church for 20 years. And so when we talk about Obama being a Christian, I think that uh, upon further research, I think it's safe to say that this is probably the theology that um, uh, <clears throat> informs Barack Obama's politics, and I would say many in the in the uh, political left today who claim to be religious also have uh, this theology beating inside of their heart. And so we're going to listen to, there's a 20-minute uh, video that's uh, posted on YouTube uh, that was put up by uh, Trinity Church in Wall, in Trinity Wall Street is the name of it, and, uh, the people who put this up. And it's an interview with uh, James Cone. You need to hear this thing not in soundbite fashion, but you need to hear James Cone in context. This is some frightening, spooky, scary, scary, scary stuff. And it, this is a false gospel, folks. And uh, the, in, you're going to hear a lot of the same themes that you hear from guys like Jim Wallace, Brian McLaren, Paget, Tony Jones, and uh, those guys. And uh, a, a lot of these new progressive liberals, uh, you're going to hear those same themes in uh, James Cone's Black Liberation Theology. And I want you to hear it in context. So we're going to do that today. And then, uh, and then after that, we'll take a break. I don't even know how long we're going to go, if we're going to start the sermon review uh, early or not or whatever. But um, the, the LCMS uh, convention has uh, just concluded, and it was, for lack of a better way of putting it, it was a confessional Lutheran rout. Um, it, you know, there was, it was a sweeping away of uh, Gerald Kieschnick and his purpose-driven, neo-evangelical, seeker-driven methodologies that he was trying to, you know, in a sense, kind of force down the throats of the LCMS. And instead, uh, Kieschnick's administration was, you know, with for all intents and purposes, swept out of office. And uh, Matthew uh, Matt Harrison uh, became the president of the LCMS. He's president-elect right now. But uh, at the on July 12th, Monday, July 12th, there was a devotional uh, homily, that, and so this is the day before Kieschnick's, uh defeat uh, and Matt Harrison's victory. Uh, there was a devotional homily de- delivered by uh, Reverend Terry Teeman, and uh, uh, and this guy is with Church Transitions Inc. And it's very clear in listening to this sermon or devotional homily that this guy has been drinking heavily from the seeker-driven, purpose-driven well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to review this homily uh, by the guy who heads up Church Transitions, Inc., which is kind of the Lutheran version of uh, of the purpose-driven network or you know those guys who are working closely with the purpose-driven leadership network guys and the name of the uh, sir, uh, the homily is entitled three simple steps on how to walk on water and uh boy is this bad it's uh, taken from the gospel of matthew chapter 14 uh, beginning at verse 22 where it, where the disciples are caught out at on the sea of galilee in the middle of the night 
when the storm kicks up and uh, Jesus was about ready to walk by them on the water and they see them, they think he's a ghost. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, can, let me walk out to you. And Jesus says, come. And so he walks out on the water. And so uh, Reverend Terry here, um, man, um, in fact, Scott Diekman uh, is the one who uh, recommended that I review this. And boy, oh boy, does this need to be reviewed because this is some bad bad preaching. Now, I want to make something clear here, and that is I, I may I may juxtapose this, not uh, not in the uh, sermon cage fight style, but I might juxtapose this with a, a, a sermon on the same text from uh, Reverend Ron Hodel at Faith Lutheran Church in uh, Capistrano Beach, California. And the reason why I want to juxtapose this is because this is a text that lends itself to um, some creative allegorization, allegor, allegorization, you know, whatever allegory, if you would, um, when it comes to the application. Because this is one of those stories where it's easy to say, okay, how can we apply this to my life? I'm not a fisherman. I don't hang out on the Sea of Galilee. What does this have to do with anything in my life? And so I'm going to uh, to you know. Play. I, in fact, I'm going to. I'm going to juxtapose this with a good sermon on this that does it does use allegory to help with the application. And I'm not a big fan of allegory. However, I understand that it's it's a valid tool and one that needs to be used used carefully and sparingly. And so, uh, Pastor Ron Hodel, who is uh, my former pastor. And uh, also the uh, the pastor who married my uh, my son, he presided at my son's wedding. Um, I, I have the ultimate respect for him, and I like the way he handles this text. And so I want to do do a comparative thing here, to uh, to so that you can see, um, really the difference. And so that's going to make up the balance of the program. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, and uh, here I've taken nearly twenty minutes to explain uh, all of this of what we're going to do today. So. Without any further ado, we're going to dive into the program proper, and we're going to begin with um, what's called a conversation with James Cohn. Uh, you can find this at YouTube.com if you type in the, the YouTube search engine, a conversation with James Cohn. It was posted by Trinity Wall Street, and uh, this is some scary stuff, and again, I didn't find this on my own. This was really found. Uh, I'll give credit to Glenn Beck and his researchers for finding this. And he played it on a, a recent segment on his program. But uh, I need to um, kind of unpack this using sound biblical uh, doctrine, not uh, a gospel that's tainted by Mormonism. So here is uh, James Cohn. Professor James Cohen, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. What did you draw on to do your, your theology as a professor, as an author? It was trying to bring together Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement together with the Black Power Movement, this symbol of being black in a white racist society. King interpreted the gospel in such a way in which the blackness of his identity was not at the center. 
Malcolm, a Muslim, rejected Christianity because it did not address his blackness. So, I wanted to address my blackness, but yet at the same time, I was a Christian. I was born a Christian. I couldn't leave that. That faith was the center of my life. But the way in which that faith had been interpreted in the seminary and also generally in the dominant interpretation of it in America, which King largely adopted, also had a white Jesus. Now, how are you going to get a European white Jesus in Palestine? You can't get that. But with white theologians, you can get almost anything out of Jesus. So they had reinterpreted Jesus so he looked like them. So I wanted to bring the blackness of my identity together with the faith that I had learned in the church. And it was that that brought me to want to interpret the Christian gospel. So, in black theology, which I developed, the blackness in that phrase comes from Malcolm X. The theology in it comes from Martin King. So I bring my... Okay, so he's wanting to reinterpret the gospel in light of the of his blackness and find a way of uniting Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. This should tell you something. You can't add to the gospel anything, because as soon as you add something to it, it ceases to be the gospel. I don't care if you're adding Malcolm X to it, Oprah to it, or Kool-Aid. Martin and Malcolm together, the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Power Movement together in order to develop a black theology of liberation. In our culture today, there are a number of prominent authors who say that religion is a primary cause of violence. In fact, it's almost too dangerous to be tolerated. Do you see a connection between religion and violence? I do see a connection between religion and violence, but I see that collection, connection largely in terms of many people who are religious are the victims of violence, like black people, uh, and they have used religion in order to respond to that violence. That's what the civil rights movement was, using religion in order to empower poor black people to resist violence. But dominant religion is always explicitly violent against people who have no power. Okay, really? So dominant religion is always violent against those who have no power? I don't think so. You ha See, when you hear something like this, you have to challenge it. You have to, okay? I have no idea what he's talking about. Who in the Christian community right now, who has dominant power, is, is basically calling for violence against those who are out of power? This is the, the assumptions here are not informed by the scriptures nor even reality. The assumptions here are informed by a reading of Karl Marx. 
any religion that's in the hands are in uh, are the instruments of those who are in power militarily, economically, and politically, and religiously, if they are the dominant group, like white people are in this country, religion is going to be violent. But that's true anywhere in the world. I've been around the world. Anywhere I, religion has been in the hands of those are in the, as instruments of those who are in power, religion is violent. But for those who are the victims, religion can often be used as a means of resisting the very violence in which that is being inflicted on them. Okay, I got a question for you. What happens in, in this theological system with this way of thinking? What happens to those who subscribe to this theology when they go from being out of power to being in power? Are they violent then? Sounds to me like they would be. We continue. Stay with the violent side for a minute. All right. For those in power, does it seem violent? I mean, there are certainly people who say, for my religious convictions, I am now going to inflict violence and, and, and feel empowered by that. But I think you're talking about people who might not see themselves as violent. Yes. I mean, most of the people who, who were very religious in the South, where I grew up, see themselves as violent okay now notice he's not dealing with this realistically he's going back when i was growing up this was the case and so it's always the case post hoc ergo poppycock they interpreted violence with the ku klux klan they didn't see segregation as violent they saw segregation as a way of life but any dominant group in any society that's making the rules and the regulations and by which that society is run, they are being violent against those who have no say in what those rules will be. I, I don't understand why anybody listens to this man. This is just hateful and racist. And it's not even, it's not even sound thinking, yet alone sound theology. Is there a way that religion specifically feeds that? Uh, because that, that could go with power in general, couldn't it? Yes, it could go, but religion is never completely separated from power. You don't get pure religion. You always get religion connected with the people. And you have to ask yourself, what position do they have in the society? Are they the ones that make the rules by which the society is organized? If they use religion for that, and if they are religious, they will use religion for that. So anybody who has institution, any group that has institutional power, they are violent. What about uh, Barack Obama then? He has institutional power, and this is the theology that informs his politics. Therefore, the mainline denominations in this country have been violent against black people. And I can show it, show you that from the time of the, about the 17th, 18th, 19th century, all the way down until the 21st century. If you are part of the dominant group in this society, you are being violent. Now, you use the term white supremacy to describe not a Ku Klux Klan idea, but the state of affairs in our country today. Yes. Is that, could you talk about that? 
white supremacy is white people making all the rules and regulations by which this country is defined. There is one black senator of the 50 who are there. Okay, got to point this out. This uh, video was made in 2008 prior to the election of Barack Obama. There's only one. That's white supremacy. There is, uh, you know, nine Supreme Court justices. All of them white as far as I'm concerned. Listen to this. He says they're all white supremacists, or they're all white on the Supreme Court. What about Justice Clarence Thomas? Last time I saw a photograph of him, he seemed to, well, be African-American. One may look black, but he's white. So that's that's what I mean by... I mean, this is just irrational. So you're... Let me see if I have this straight. In this theologian's way of thinking, if you are a black person and you basically are a constitutionalist, you basically think that uh, you know you, you're you're a constructionist and you're into the original intent of the Constitution, that makes you a white person even if you're black. You know, I remember a decade ago, people. I remember somebody in the media making the case that. Bill Clinton was the first black president. And you're thinking, that is stupid. It's absolutely irrational. But somebody actually made that argument long before Barack Obama that Bill Clinton was the first black president. Not kidding. Look it up. Google it. You'll find that there are people who actually wrote this way and considered that to be sound political thinking at the time. We're going to pause right here. And uh, we're going to take our first break and we'll continue with uh, listening to James Cone. This is a theologian, the Reverend James Cone. Uh, this is a theologian who has had a profound influence on the thinking of uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, uh, Barack Obama, and others in the uh, in the religious left. And what's funny is when I was at the Transform Conference, there was uh, I played the audio from a video. Go back in my archives, and you'll find this. Uh, of of a guy down in South America who sent a video postcard that was played at the Transform uh, at the Transform Emergent Conference that I attended in April, and he was basically ta- making a case for liberation theology. Folks, this is exactly what uh, what uh, James Cone is into. He's just come up with a a very racial version of liberation theology. So we'll hear more uh, about this, especially about Christ and the cross when we get back from this break. Now, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Fools Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR, or call them at area code 425-533-8659. 
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Right, we're back. Warning, if you're mixing the gospel with other things, other philosophies, you lose the gospel. Gone. Kaput. Poof. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially and uh, help us out in that department by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When the, when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And what that allows us to do is basically get through the lean months which which we're in right now and uh, to basically make it so that we can pay for all of our budgeted expenses month after month after month and ultimately to be able to expand the reach of pirate christian radio and fighting for the faith so uh, of course if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. By the way, got an email from uh, Ben Mordecai, and uh, uh, Mr. Mordecai wrote me and suggested that I put fuzzy bunny slippers in the uh, Pirate Christian Radio store. If you <laughs> So if you visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and you look on the left-hand side, about you know, partway down the page, you will see a link where you can purchase fuzzy bunny slippers, and it's also at piratechristianradio.com in our uh, pirate store under featured resources. So, those of you who've been asking for a way to purchase fuzzy bunny slippers in which to listen to the program, there you have. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. Okay, <laughs> moving back. <laughs> I sometimes I just wonder what is going through my head. Anyway, okay, uh, here's uh, the continuation of this conversation with James Cone, who is the creator of black liberation theology. By the way, the job of a Christian theologian is not to come up with their own creative theologies. It's not. Um, it's to faithfully proclaim the doctrines and theologies laid out in Scripture. Now, I, I want to point something out here. And that is is that um, liberals have a way of flattening the scriptures and basically saying, "Oh, they're all the same. It's all it's all man-made. It's all mytho mythology. It's all whatever." Okay, it, it's not. 
Okay, and what I would strongly recommend that you all do when it comes to understanding God's Word, when we read the gospel narratives, that's historical biography. It's a particular genre of uh, of writing. That's historical biography written by witnesses, by eyewitnesses. Okay, so in the in the biographies, we read that Christ died on the cross. When we get to the epistles, when we get to the writings of the apostles and their doctrine, it's in their letters that they theologically interpret those historical events recorded for us in the historical biographies. So um, what's happening here and what you're going to hear very shortly is, is that the subject is going to switch to Jesus' death on the cross. And what James Cone does here is he rejects what the Bible says about Jesus' death on the cross, and he eisegetes, that means reads into uh, that, those historical uh, narratives, uh, theology that is not anywhere either taught in the, in, in the Bible. It's nowhere found in the New Testament. It's nowhere laid out in the doctrines and writings of the apostles who were the eye, basically the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and, uh, and his teaching. And nowhere in in it's not even found in the writings of the of the early church fathers. This is a completely foreign and exotic theology. This is if you ever been. I mean, you ever traveled uh, to different portions of the United States, down in in the South, in the in Georgia, in places like that. There is a plant that is not indigenous to the United States that has just taken over down there. I forget the name of it, um, but uh, I mean, entire regions of uh, of Georgia are covered in this climbing vine that's from from Asia. Uh, okay, and it does it's it's doing great damage, it, it, for lack of a better way of putting it. I remember watching one of the uh, the outdoor channels, and uh, and they were it was a fishing show, and there was a fish that was not indigenous to the area that somebody had introduced into a particular lake, and it completely destroyed the fishing there because they were trying to get rid of one pest, and then what happened is is that. The uh, the species that they brought in didn't it, it wasn't indigenous it didn't fit there and as a result of it it took over and destroyed everything okay and then you think about those uh, poisonous toads down in Australia you know they brought them in to get rid of a problem and now they've become the problem themselves because they have no natural predators that's what we're talking about here with James Cone's theology this is foreign. This is not indigenous to the scriptures. This is a predatory theology that is exotic and has no place being brought into any Christian church because it is not grounded in and truly you know, exegeted out of what the scriptures teach. And what this guy has, by his own admission, he tried to uh, create a black liberation theology that took some of the ideas of Martin Luther King the, and, and his understanding of the gospel and melded it with the ideas of Malcolm X, who was a member of the Black Muslim Party. This is a guy who was antithetical, uh, an enemy of Christianity. And as a result of it, James Cone's theology is an enemy of biblical Christianity. And it has to be viewed that way. And those of you who have friends who are buying into this stuff, you must contend 
for the Christian faith against this theology because this is an exotic, foreign, alien theology that doesn't have its origins in, in the mind of God, but instead really the pit of hell. And it's doing great damage not only to the Christian church, but to society at large, because this is the theology that's informing the politics of many people who are in power in the left right now. White supremacy. That is white people's rules and regulation defining how the community and the society is going to be run. That's all it means. And white people control most of the economic resources in this land. They control the political process. They make the rules for all of that. Marginalized aspects of black religion and black theology came into being in order to address that. But you will not have many white people who are addressing white supremacy. They will interpret religion and the Christian faith in such a way as if that is not relevant. That itself is white supremacy. Where in the scriptures is white supremacy even brought up as an issue? And these so-called power structures that you're talking about that are really informed by Marx. Your focus of your work today is the cross and the lynching tree. Listen carefully to this. This is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Christ's death on the cross for our sins. Now, this, what you're going to hear in this segment, if this doesn't prove that we're dealing with an enemy, an alien enemy, an exotic theology that is not compatible with biblical Christianity, then I don't know what else will. You're working on a book on that. Right. What does the cross tell us about religion and violence in our culture? Well, I think the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, was a first century lynching. And it was very violent. It was Jesus was lynched. Well, America has a tradition of lynching in which America lynched more than 5,000 black people in this land. America has a tradition of lynching. You know, baseball, Thanksgiving, apple pie, and lynching. I bet you anything that there's more than 5,000 murderers in prisons across the United States. And yet, I don't think that murder is part of the American tradition. The Christian church said very little about it. It was very violent lynching. So if we understand the cross correctly... We will see it as Jesus being a victim of lynching, a victim of violence. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. That's what Jesus said. He lays down his life for the sheep. This man says... The Jesus, we have to, if we're going to correctly understand the cross, we have to see Jesus as a victim of a lynching. So at the heart of the Christian faith is God taking upon God's self the suffering of the victim.
So if Christians in this society want to understand what the crucifixion, what the cross was all about, they have to see it, particularly in America, in the United States. They have to see it through the lynching experience. That's the only way they'll understand what was happening at that cross. When you see a lynched black body, that's who God is. God is present in that body, just like God was present in Jesus' cross. So when you see a black man lynched, that's as much of the incarnation as this is the incarnation of, of God in Christ. Is that what the Bible teaches? Not even close. So the cross is very violent, in which God has taken the violence of sin in the world up on God's self. And if Christians today want to understand what that means and what it caused them to do, they have to see it through the experience of lynching within this country. So what does that tell us about the violence in our own lives and our identity as Christians? Well, I, I think it means, as our identity of Christian, we have to become identified with lynched black victims. If we can't do that, we can't identify with the crucifixion of Jesus. So if we can't identify with lynched black victims, we can't identify with Christ. This is putting a stipulation on salvation that I, I don't see anywhere in the scriptures. And we just playing around. It's not real, though. And most of, for most of the people, the crucifixion is not real. It's just some little symbol, some little holy symbol. But the cross was violent. Crucifixion during Romans' time was analogous to lynching during this time. You've addressed this in a way, and I'd like to read something that, that you published recently. Most whites want mercy and forgiveness, but not justice and reparations. How does the cross inform the issue of, of justice and reparation. We want, so I'm a white guy, and an overweight one at that, and so all I want is forgiveness, but I don't want justice and reparations? What are you talking about? Am, <clears throat> okay, fine. I'm all in favor of reparations. Anybody who is still alive right now who was enslaved in the United States during the time in which slavery was constitutionally allowed, come and we will give you reparations. Well, the cross, as I said, is God taking the side of the victim. It's a symbol of that. So the cross is the, the symbol of God taking the side of the victim. So how are we saved then, James? God making ultimate identification with the powerless. Now, if the powerful in our society, the white people, if they want to become Christians, they have to give up that power and become identified with the powerless if you're going to be a Christian. So this is something I have to do. I'm not saved unless I do this. I have to give up my power. What well, I don't even know what power I have. But I have to give up my power and become powerless and identify with the powerless in order to identify with Christ because the cross is a symbol of God taking the side of the victim. Where is this taught in the Bible again? 
what scripture passages lay out this teaching, this understanding of the cross? Answer, none of them. The apostles didn't teach this about the cross. This is a foreign and exotic theology that has no business being taught in the church. You can't be identified with the powerful and also Christian at the same time. That's a contradiction of terms. Now, okay, I'm going to back this up. You need to hear what he just said, and I'm going to ask just the obvious question. Listen again. If they want to become Christians, they have to give up that power. So if you want to become a Christian, you have to give up power. And become identified with the powerless if you're going to be a Christian. Uh-huh. You can't be identified with the powerful and also Christian at the same time. That's a contradiction of terms. Okay, yeah. Um. So Barack Obama, is he then a Christian? Because he's the most powerful man on the planet. Now, how do I, how do I know that you really identify with? The victim. Well, if you're identifying with the victim, you not only want to feel good about that, you also have to pay back that which you took. Fine, I'll be happy to give back anything I took. Who did I take it from again? When did I, when was I guilty of taking anything? You just don't say, please forgive me now. The only way in which your repentance, your forgiveness can be, can be authentic, your reception of it can be authentic, your repentance can be authentic, is that you give back what you took. So if you're, you're not really a Christian, especially if you're a white person, if you identify with power and you don't give that back to the black people, Like I said, you add anything to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. This is not the gospel taught by Jesus or his apostles. This is something completely different. And this is an acid that is eroding the American fabric. This is an acid that will destroy every freedom-loving country. This is a theology that seeks to enslave by basically getting you to voluntarily, in the name of being an authentic Christian, being willing to be enslaved. And white people took a lot from black people. Now you come to this reading the scriptures, the same scriptures that the dominant white church read. How can people read Holy Scriptures so differently? How do you read the scriptures? I read the scriptures from the bottom. That is, I read the scriptures from the vantage point of the weak, the poor, and the helpless. I think that's the dominant theme in the scriptures. Okay, remember what I said in the lecture that I posted just a week and a half ago about three-dimensional theology. The center of your theology determines a lot. So the center of his theology is the victim. Not Christ, not God, the victim. He reads it from the bottom. You do that, you don't understand the scriptures because Jesus is the key to the scriptures. It's all about Christ and him crucified for our sins. If that's not the center, you got some serious problems. And this guy has some serious problems. Again, where was this taught 
in the ancient church. Where is this taught in the New Testament? It's not. This is a new arrival on the scene. It is a foreign, alien, exotic theology that is hostile to biblical Christianity and hostile to the Christian faith in Christ. I think you see that in Amos and the other prophets. I think you see that in the Exodus, that symbol. I think you see that in the story of Jesus' life and certainly in the cross. I think you have to read the scripture through the eyes of those who are marginal, weak, helpless in this society. But I don't, everybody doesn't read it that way. And the people who don't... Yeah, that's funny is the apostles not only didn't read it that way, they didn't write it that way. Read it that way are usually the people who are already on top. They are. Oh, yes, yeah, because if you don't read it that way, you must, you must be a white person and you're in power, so you're not really an authentic Christian. And if you want to become a Christian, then you have to give up your power and identify with those who are powerless. The advantage. And when you are advantaged, I don't think you can read the Scripture correctly. Of course, they wouldn't agree with me, but I'm just making the claim which I think is inherent in the Scriptures itself. Now, there are many voices in the Scripture, and you have to choose what the Scripture doesn't do is self-interpret. You have to make a choice. Uh, no, the Bible does self-interpret. You're absolutely incorrect there. Scripture interprets Scripture. I choose by looking at the scriptures from the vantage point of the cross, a violent event, an event in which the helpless Christ, Lord, is hanging there. I think that is close to a lynch black victim. Jesus is not a helpless Christ. He himself said that if he wanted to, there was a legion of angels ready to rescue him at any moment. He wasn't the, a victim in that sense. He laid down his life of his own accord, only to take it up again. Than it is to somebody who is sitting up in some mansion somewhere. Now, I, I have no way of proving that. I can only bear witness. Yeah, he has no way of proving it because the Bible doesn't say that. And this witness must be a witness of proclamation for the kingdom that doesn't point to me, but points to the one who was on the cross. How do you account for the violence that's in the scriptures, not only of our tradition, of, of all the traditions? I think you account for that violence because as human beings wrote that scriptures. Human beings wrote those scriptures. Now, God may have been present, you know, inspiring them and moving in and between them, but human beings wrote those scriptures, and that violence is reflective of the human voice in those scriptures and the human beings in that scripture. That's why you just can't use the Bible and say the Bible says. Which, what part? Where? Notice he's now attacking the Bible. You just can't take a verse here or there, and that's true in all Scripture. 
even those who think the scripture is infallible, is inerrant, is God's literal word. That may be. I'm not saying it's not. I don't think so. But now, so apparently he doesn't believe the Bible is inerrant or infallible. But it's apparently where he came up with his theology, his own unique interpretation. By the way, I was thinking about this. Doesn't Scripture say that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free? If his theology were correct, then why is it that when the Apostle Paul writes his epistle uh, of Philemon uh, to Philemon, a slave owner, he doesn't tell him that if he was a true, authentic Christian, he'd give up his power, set his uh, slave free, and become powerless. I won't even want to fight about that. What I do know is when human beings interpret that word, you get a fallible interpretation. And that's why you get so many different interpretations. I would rather follow someone who is humble about that, who has some humility about that. And there's that postmodernism. And who realizes that their judgment may be wrong. I'd rather follow somebody who is always questioning themselves than to follow someone who is absolutely true. I worry about people. He sure does seem certain about his theology, though. I didn't hear any doubts about him and his theology. Who are absolutely true about anything. You gotta have some humility. You gotta know you are a finite human being. So, interpreters of the scripture are fallible creatures. I think the people who wrote it are fallible too. And that's why you got so many different voices there. There's a, one view that the world's religions, that each monotheism is a self-contained truth system, and that they must therefore necessarily be in conflict. Uh, how do you view different religions? See, I don't think any religion is a self-contained system of truth. Not absolute. I think they're all human uh, expressions searching for God's truth. But that's not God speaking, not literally so. Oh, no. Uh, people who think so, they can kill you in the name of God. And I saw a lot of people in the South doing that to black people. When they lynched black people, it was a religion encouraging them to do that. There's one a false religion. One white historian who has written an essay in which he says religion was the religion of the white southerner who lynched. Just like it's the religion of people who kill people today. I don't go with that. I do not think that any religion that's good, a good religion, as we used to say, that good religion and bad religion, a good religion does not kill. What can an individual, or perhaps it's a small congregation, do to, to address this, to move in, in this direction, to start to transform the way that religion works in this country? 
There's that word, transform. Apparently Christianity has got it wrong for the last 2,000 years, and we need to transform the church to better reflect this new theology. They have to bear witness to the God that they know and hate all injustice, be enraged about it, and to organize to fight it, to join movements of justice. That's the way you fight it. You've been working on this issue, racial reconciliation, for 40 years, you just said. And the United States is uh, arguably more segregated than it's ever been. Yes. Oh, man. What keeps you going? Yeah, I I mean, because, yeah, the last time I went to the mall, you know, they had an entrance for the colored people and an entrance for the white people. Yeah, When I was eating at the restaurant, they asked me, would you like colored or non-colored? Right. Where do you find hope? I find hope in the gospel. And when I hear that preached, when I see people bearing witness to the gospel. What's again the gospel? Um, Jesus identifying because he was the victim. When I see people who recognize what justice is in this society. Where's repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Repentance and the forgiveness of sin. And in this world. You know, people in power have more power today than they ever had before. But people are resisting that power. Small, powerless people. I see hope. When I see weak, powerless, poor people standing up and resisting the inhumanity that's being inflicted. Weak, powerless, poor people. Yet, funny enough, on this program last week, I read an article that was steeped in scripture that pointed out that many who are in poverty are in poverty because they are lazy not because they're victims. This is a one-size-fits-all victim narrative when it comes to poverty, and this is absolutely a lie. That gives me hope, because I know God is still present in the world when I see little people resisting the violence that's in this world. That's right, sticking it to the Caesar man. That's where I see the hope. Remember now, remember, Jesus was basically unknown. I mean, he was not a very famous person. So if hope can come out of the crucifixion, out of the cross, then it can come. It's not hope for the forgiveness of sins. It's it's hope for overthrowing the powerful and because you're a little person. Come out of the little crosses that I see people who have to bear the cross of white supremacy, and I see people bearing witness against that. That's where my hope comes from. There you have it. This, uh, Reverend James Cone, Reverend James Cone was a major influence on the theology of Jeremiah Wright. And this is the theology that was taught at Jeremiah Wright's church. And this is the theology that Barack Obama imbibed in 
for 20 years. This is seriously bad. This is a false gospel, false view of, of the cross, a false everything, and it's this thing is hostile to biblical Christianity and is hostile to a free people. This is seriously bad. What do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. 
Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. It's This is anything but Friday light. I cannot emphasize enough that um, what we're seeing here in the in the decay of Christianity, you know, in the liberal camps, the liberal and emergent, uh, a false theology, a false religion has come up out of that destruction that is a threat not only to the church but all of humanity. That's how serious this is. The solution: proclaim the gospel, preach Christ and Him crucified. Call men to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and those who are teaching false doctrine, rebuke them and put them out of the church. You leave them in, and this is the kind of mischief that they create. So much, so bad is this mischief that over time people don't even recognize this as false doctrine, and they think that the that the biblical gospel is the false gospel, and that the church needs to be transformed, and that needs to be gotten rid of. Error does not seek to coexist with the truth. Keep that in mind. All right, uh, moving along here. It's uh, time for our sermon review, and that requires me to kick up the sermon review music. Here we go. The good, the bad, and the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, homily, was delivered uh, last Monday, July 12th, at the 2010 LCMS convention in Houston, Texas, delivered by the Reverend Terry Timon, or Timon, entitled Three Simple Steps on How to Walk on Water. Before I get into this sermon, I want to make something really clear. You don't establish something as a doctrine unless it is clearly taught in scriptures, and I mean unequivocally clearly taught. The reason why we know the gospel is about repentance and the forgiveness of sins is because it's clearly taught as that. That Christ's death on the cross was a propitiatory sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice that propitiated God's wrath. <clears throat> that is clearly taught in Scripture. How do we know that adultery is a sin? Because God's Word unequivocally teaches that. When God's Word doesn't clearly teach something, that's not a sin. If there's no law against something, it's not a sin. If the gospel isn't defined a particular way, then it's not. that's not the gospel. 
Okay, real simple. These are important rules for you to keep in mind as we approach the scriptures. Reverend Terry here, his um, sermon text is taken from Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 22. So without any further ado, let me uh, kill the music here. Here is um, Reverend Terry on three simple steps on how to walk on water. Scripture reading for this afternoon is from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 32. It's a very familiar story to everyone, I'm sure. It's the account of Jesus walking on the water, and it says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. This is the word of the Lord. Grace and peace be yours this day in the name of our holy, awesome, loving, and forgiving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. There's this ridiculous story about a wealthy Texan who died after a long illness. I mean, this man was so rich that... People literally came from all over the world to find out whether or not they were included in the bequest. Need to remind you all, Pastor Terry Tiemann is the president, executive director of Transforming Churches Network. He is in, I mean, this guy is like the LCMS version of a Rick Warren crony. Uh, He's the uh, LCMS version of somebody who uh is into transitioning churches and transforming them transforming them from what to what my church doesn't need transformation at all that's who we're talking about here this is this is some this is the monday before kishnik is voted out of office so when the lawyer got everybody gathered together he began to read the will rather somberly to my wife, Edna. I leave my ranch. To my children, Jim and Joan, I leave my money market accounts. To my good friend and neighbor, Fred, I leave my Mercedes, and and on it went. Finally, he got to the end of the list, and he read to my cousin, George, who always sat around and never did much of anything, but who wanted to be remembered in my will, I'd simply like to say, Hi, George! Anybody here named George? (laughs) 
We all know somebody like that, don't we? I mean, somebody that just kind of stands around and never really does much of anything. Somebody that has good intentions. Someday I'm going to do something important when I get around to it. It's relatively rare, though, to find somebody who's willing to step out in faith and act now. Simon Peter was one of those rare individuals. See, he wasn't a stand-around-and-watcher. He was a water walker. And that's what I want to talk to you about this afternoon. So, okay, now, what I'm hearing this guy basically saying is, is that apparently um, standing around and, quote, doing nothing is the sin? Instead of being a water walker. Now, I just, uh, Reverend Terry, I mean, I understand that I obviously don't have the same theological training that you do. But when I received my theological training and uh, we worked through this passage, it, it did occur to me that Jesus never rebuked the other apostles for not getting out of the boat. Yeah, it's just, in fact, nowhere else in Scripture do we f- even hear the other apostles saying, man, I wish I had done it. I wish I had been a water walker. And Jesus never chides or chastises any of the other apostles for not being water walkers. Afternoon is walking on the water, or should I say, stepping out in faith and doing something that would be impossible for us to do on our own. I'm talking about overcoming our fears and experiencing the power of God to truly make a kingdom difference. This is exactly the stuff that I hear in the seeker-driven churches. This is not the biblical gospel. This is something that is straight out of Rick Warren, Mark Batterson, Perry Noble, and those guys. And it's a complete twist of Scripture. Jesus hasn't called us to make a difference in the world. As I've said before, and I'll say it again, Hitler made a difference. Changed the world, he did. And yet, I don't think that he was acting on behalf of the kingdom of God. Christians are called to proclaim the gospel. We are given the ministry of reconciliation to announce to the world and to our neighbors that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, announcing that the peace of God through what Christ has done on the cross, and to serve our neighbors in our vocations. That's why at the ends at the end of all the Pauline epistles we get admonishments to what basically amounts to a normal everyday vocational life of being a father, a mother, a child, a husband, an owner, a business owner, a, a soldier, you name it. And glorifying God in the work that we do in serving our neighbor in the vocation that we're called to. We're not called to be world changers. We're called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to love our neighbor in vocation. And this is what the LCMS has taught from the beginning, and this is what Christianity has taught from the beginning. Why are you giving me 
Pastor Tiemann. The same themes I'm, I can hear from Bill Hybels, from John Ortberg, from Rick Warren, from Bob Buford. Have you spent so much time with them that you've forgotten what the biblical gospel is? I'm sure we'll hear it. But this sounds really foreign and exotic, almost like what we heard in the first hour of the program. I'm talking about revitalizing the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Why does the Missouri Synod need to be revitalized, sir? What's wrong with it? Why does it need to be revitalized? The gospel we preach and the sacraments we administer and the word of God that we proclaim doesn't need revitalization. We're talking about making an impact in your community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the pastors who proclaim the gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and the pastors who faithfully administer the body and blood of Christ Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they do have an impact in their communities because it's not them at work, it's God who's at work. Why is it that your assumption, sir, is that they're doing something wrong and that they have to retool things in order to, quote, revitalize? You revitalize old neighborhoods that are falling apart. But word and sacrament ministry doesn't need revitalization. I'm talking about making disciples. And those who are catechizing and baptizing, are they not making disciples, sir? And I'd like to do that by sharing with you three simple steps on how to walk on water. Give me a break. Three simple steps to walk on water. That's how you're handling this text. I'm about ready to vomit. So, are you ready? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm all ears, sitting here at, in my seat, just riveted to it. Some of you are. Let's try that again. Are you ready? I think they're ready. Yeah, yeah, right. Let's do it. Here's the first simple step on how to walk on water. Yeah, please, because I, I never realized that Matthew 14 was, an how, was a how-to passage. If you want to walk on the water, you have got to get out of the boat. Kind of makes sense, right? If you want to walk on the water, you've got to get out of the boat. So You first. Go ahead and say to your neighbor right now, if you want to walk on the water, you have got to get out of the boat. Go ahead and do that. Losing patience already. Of course, it's easier said than done when you're walking in Peter's sandals, am I right? I mean, imagine, if you will, what that must have been like. Water crashing down on your head, uh, waves at, or wind at gale force, and you're terrified, no Dramamine on the boat. And all of a sudden, you, you look out across the water, and here's Jesus himself, the very Son of God, inviting you to get out of the boat and to walk on the water, to go on the adventure of your life and experience the impossible. Really, is that, what the, is that what this passage promises? That we can 
experience the impossible, go on the adventure of a lifetime. The text doesn't say anything of the sort. So what do you do? What do you choose, the water or the boat? The boat or the water? On the one hand, the boat is relatively safe and comfortable and secure. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. I'm going to play for you a good sermon that also uses a little bit of allegory. Okay? Now, I think it's important to play them side by side because what happens in allegory is is that you take the elements in the passage and you assign different symbolic meanings to them. Okay? And... um one, I think, does a far better job than the other, although I get queasy about allegorization. <laughs> why, do, why does it sound like I said algorization? You know, that has to do with global warming. Um, anyway, <clears throat> man, allegorization. And uh, anyway, the idea here is is that you know, now what he's going to do is he's going to take the boat and he's going to attach some meaning to it. Pastor Hodel in his sermon, the good one, will do the same. Okay, so I've got to be fair here and point out that they're going to use similar techniques. At this point, the, when you're going, if you're going to use uh, allegory, you've got to be really, really, really careful because then the analogy of faith has to be the thing that guides. And the analogy of faith has to do with repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It has to do with sin and forgiveness. And so in a similar way, he's going to allegorize here and the question that comes up is, is what's going to be the sin? Listen carefully. On the other hand, there is the water. The waves are high. The, the wind is strong. And there's a very real possibility that you could sink and drown and die. But if you don't get out of the boat, it is impossible to walk on the water. I am. I'm, I'm going to just freak out here. It is an immutable law of nature. The only way to walk on the water is to get out of the boat. <clears throat> uh, Pastor Terry, you want to talk about immutable laws of nature. Um, one of the immutable laws of nature is you can't walk on water. So, folks, here's the deal. If you want to do something important in life... If you really want to make a difference, if you, if, oh man, I'm just, this, this, mm. if you want to do something important in life, you want to make a difference, you've got to step out of the boat and step out in faith into the trouble so that you can do something important in life. Malarkey. This is absolute bovine scatology. Let me give you an example. Okay. Would you argue that mothers, you know, your mom, my mom, your wife who's mothering your children, that they're not making a difference in the world? That they're not doing something so radically important that it's absolutely earth-shatteringly important and makes a huge difference? How about you dads? Did you have to step out in faith to get out of the boat to become a mom or a dad? To, no. The big faith that you, show, you showed was you guys getting down on your knees and asking that woman to marry you. 
big things are affected through small things. The things that really matter, parenting, working hard, character. And yes, each individual one of us makes a difference that way. But none of us gets the big credit for making these huge earth-shattering things. And it's generally the people who are striving to make this huge impact who are doing the most damage. It's the people who are not seeking after adventure. It is the people who are not seeking to radically change the world, who are generally called upon by God in history to go and make that difference because they're not seeking it. Do you think Eisenhower was looking for a fight in World War II so that he could make a difference? No. Was he called upon to lead our troops? Yes. And you think about the everyday average Joe G.I., who all the only thing he wanted to do was to farm or to live his life, and they were called upon to do the most heroic things. And those men collectively, who were not looking to make a difference, became known as the greatest generation, the generation that overthrew and defeated Nazism. But they l weren't looking for it. They were citizens who were called upon to be soldiers. I am very skeptical, very leery, and don't trust people who tell me they oh, the thing that they really want to do is make a big difference in the world. Go back to being a mom, to being a dad, to being a, a, a husband, a wife, a student, a child, a worker. Let God decide who gets to make the difference and who will be called upon to make the sacrifices that will have the big impact in the world. In the kingdom of God, you've got to be willing to leave the safety and security of your boat. And apparently what he's talking about, he wants to revitalize the church. That means getting rid of the liturgy. So here is the fundamental question that I would like for you to consider this afternoon. What's your boat? What's your boat? I'm going to tell you what your boat is. Your boat is whatever you put your faith in apart from God himself. Okay, now, I'm fine with this so-called allegory at this moment. If that's how he's going to... Anything you put your fear, love, and trust in above God, what are we talking? First commandment. Okay, now, fine, if that's what the boat is, anything I put my trust in above God, that's first commandment stuff. I'm absolutely against idolatry and trusting in anything above God. Not that I pull this off myself, not even close, but I do recognize that God's law makes it clear that I am not to fear, love, and trust in anything above God. But let's find out how he further defines that trusting in something above God. Your boat is whatever you're tempted to put your trust in, especially when life gets a little stormy. Your boat is whatever keeps you so comfortable, but you don't want to give it up even if it keeps you from joining Jesus on the waves. Your boat is whatever pulls you away from walking on the water with Jesus. It is whatever you're afraid of. That's your boat. 
and leaving it may be the most difficult thing that you ever do in your life. And this coming from the man who heads up Transforming Churches Network. It should be called Hijacking Churches Network because it turns them into purpose-driven churches. But folks, if you want to walk on the water, you have got to get out of the boat. Hang on a second here. The text itself is about Jesus, not about Peter's desire to walk on the water. Peter wanted to go where Jesus was. That's the first simple step. Here's the second one. If you want to walk on the water, you have to be willing to be reckless in the name of the Lord. Willing to be reckless in the name of the Lord. So, if the boat is anything you trust in God, you trust in above God, then the second simple step is making sure that your be that recklessness is what marks what you do nope that's not taught in the text the scriptures don't teach us to be reckless they teach us to be careful stewards and watchful stewards of what god has given us of sound doctrine word and sacrament christ and him crucified for our sins and not to recklessly chase the wind. You see, false doctrine is likened in Scripture as be, as winds of the sea tossed, you know, tossing and foaming to and fro. And those who are who are who succumb to false doctrine are those who are being tossed to and fro by all the different waves and winds. So we're not called to be reckless. We're called to be careful. Great philosopher, theologian, Soren Kierkegaard once told a frightening parable about a wild goose. More wild goose talk. Hmm. wonder if you read this in Batterson's book. By the way, uh, this story, uh, this parable written by Soren Kierkegaard is not found in the Bible. I just want to let you know that. That was shot by a hunter. It wasn't killed. It was simply wounded in the wing. It kind of fluttered down and landed in this local barnyard. And, of course, all of the domestic geese and ducks and chickens kind of sidled up to that goose. And they asked him, what's it like to fly? What's it like to be up there in the, the wild blue yonder? And the goose said, it's, it's fantastic. As I look down, that this barn looks like it's about an inch high. And all of you look like little ants kind of crawling along the ground. All these domestic fowl were really impressed by this speech. In fact, so much so that they asked the wild goose to talk to them on a regular basis about what it was like to fly. In fact, they even got him a little box that he could stand on so they could see him better. And it became a weekly ritual. But a strange thing happened. Even though those domestic ducks and geese and chickens loved to hear the wild goose talk about flying, they never once tried to fly themselves. And that wild goose, even though his wing eventually healed, he never tried to fly again either. Now, I say this is a frightening parable. Why? Because I think in many ways, 
it symbolizes what we often do in the church. You see, we're like those ducks and geese and chickens who like to talk about flying, about doing the work of the church. What? Who like to talk about flying, who like to talk about doing the work of the church. He is addressing layman delegates and pastoral delegates at the LCMS convention in Houston, Texas. I seriously doubt that the pastors who are in attendance just like talking about ministry. about missions, about evangelism, about being obedient to Christ. And then we're afraid to fly. Or to use the analogy of the text, we cower in the back of the boat. So flying in his mind, of course, is you know signing up to be one of the churches that uh, is part of the Transforming Churches Network. Otherwise, you know, you're just talking about Evangelist, you're just talking about ministry. You're just talking about missions. You're not really doing anything. Unwilling to be reckless in the name of the Lord. See, now that's the sin. You're, if, it's a sin if you're not willing to be reckless in the name of the Lord. May I uh, suggest that it's a sin to twist God's word this way? But folks, here's the good news for today. The what? The, the good news for today. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was not afraid to be reckless on our behalf. He didn't think it was reckless at all to leave the very throne of heaven. And become. So Jesus' incarnation is now likened to recklessness. Hmm. I don't recall that being a primary theme in, in regard to the atonement. I didn't know God was capable of being reckless. A human being so that he could be placed under the law and do everything that our Heavenly Father required. He didn't think that it was reckless at all to be beaten and mocked and, and spit upon for us. He didn't think it was reckless at all to have nails driven through his hands and his feet and a I'd play the uh, gospel nugget soundbite at this point, but I want to point something out to you. Here he's using the imagery of the cross in order to support the primary point, the primary point of you being reckless. See, look, Jesus was reckless, therefore you need to be reckless, and if you're not reckless, you're in sin because you're trusting in something bigger than God, or you're trusting in something other than God. This is slippery, and it's wrong. Crown of thorns placed on his head, and a spear thrust through his side. No, he didn't think it was reckless at all to shed his blood for us, so that we might have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Jesus didn't think it was reckless to give his life for us so that we might become his children. By the way, this is not gospel preaching. This is manipulation. There is a difference. And we know that's possible for every single one of us. Because, as it says in John 1, verse 12, to all who received him. Did you catch that? All who received him, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, rich, poor, young, old, men, women, and children. 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Fellow children of God. I believe that it's time to stop talking and start flying. What complete arrogance. Really, I know a large portion of the pastors who were in attendance there. How dare you? Accuse them of just standing around and not flying in their ministry. How dare you? In your smug arrogance and your Bible twisting, you are basically impugning a bunch of people of committing the sin of non-recklessness when there is no sin of that mentioned in the scriptures, sir. To be reckless in the name of the Lord. And finally, one last thing. we're going to walk on the water. We also need to read and follow the instruction book. Yeah, he's holding up his Bible. Oh, yeah, because the Bible is all about being an instruction book. Isn't that like Rick Warren's claim, you know, the Bible's an instruction manual or the user's manual for life? And you think that the pastors there at at the convention don't know how to read their Bibles and don't read it? They don't know what it says. They don't know how to apply it. Of course, I'm talking about the Bible, God's holy and inspired word. It's a great story about Teddy Roosevelt. Once read a book by New York newspaper man. Uh, the, the Teddy Roosevelt is not mentioned in the Bible, by the way. Jacob Reese entitled, How the Other Half Lives. It's about the unseemly side of New York City, the crime and the vice and some of those things. And so Roosevelt was so impressed that He went down to the newspaper office to talk to Reese, but he wasn't there, so instead he wrote him a note, and the note read and said this, have read your book and have come to help. I like that, don't you? Wouldn't that be a great motto for our church? (laughs) Have read your book, Lord, have come to help. Wow. I read your book, Jesus. I came to help. I, I, I want to help you. <sighs> Isn't it the other way around? Jesus comes to help us, to save us, to redeem us, lost sinners. There's a lot of great stuff in this book, including Matthew 28, verse 19, which says, Go, therefore, and make disciples. And do you think the pastors there haven't been doing that? As my good friend Gene Benkowski likes to say it, as you're going, wherever you go, whatever you're doing, make disciples of all people. And of course it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, strength and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now those are mottos of people ready to walk on the water. Mottos. Those are mottos of people who are ready to walk on the water. Yeah, because there's something great inside of us. We've come to help Jesus. We're ready to walk on the water. Law, 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 illegal use of the law. People ready to live recklessly for Christ. To have the kind of faith that Simon Peter had. The kind of faith about which Uh, we... I have the exact same kind of faith that Simon Peter had. 
because Simon Peter had faith and trust in his Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation and the forgiveness of his sins. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. That would be the rock of his confession. Are you not familiar with what our confession of faith says about that passage? And that, my friends, is us. That's who we are. That's who we're called to be. Not lazy hens lying around the barnyard, but creatures meant for the sky. Uh, keep in mind the uh, the illusion. He's he read the Soren Kierkegaard parable as if it was biblical truth, and now people are being judged and called to and basically being accused of sinners if they don't measure up to the teachings of Soren Kierkegaard's parable. This is supreme Bible twisting and manipulation of the worst kind. Dear friends in Christ. We really only have two choices. We can play it safe, stay inside the boat, and give in to our fears. Or we can trust in God, heed Christ's invitation to walk on the water, and begin the greatest adventure of our lives. But remember this. If you want to walk on the water, you have got to get out of the boat. May God grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Oh, gag me with a spoon. Come on. I apologize, folks. I understand he's supposed to be in the LCMS camp, but apparently he's come under the influence of the Rick Warrenites. Good night. Now, as a counterpoint, I'm going to play a sermon by the Reverend Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, that was delivered in 2008. And... This uh, particular sermon is entitled Storms and Boats. That's what it's entitled. And you'll notice in the sermon that Pastor Hodel does engage in allegory. That being the case, he lets the rule of faith, sin and the forgiveness of sins, Christ and him crucified for our sins, be the rule that governs his allegory so that he doesn't stray from the text and its meaning, and in the application of it, doesn't stray from the biblical gospel. And, you know, as some, I don't trust myself with allegory, but uh, Pastor Hodel does a fine job here. So I want you to hear it as a, a kind of a counterpoint. So here's Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church, an LCMS congregation, a man who I seriously doubt is sitting around the barnyard just wondering what it's like to fly and see what he does with this text. In the name of Jesus, amen. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was alone. One thing I like about oceans is that they change daily. Mountains, such as the mountain that Jesus went up on to pray, mountains change too. But I don't know mountains as well as I know oceans now. 
One day, the ocean can be playful, it can be clear as crystal, you can go to the bow of the boat and you can look down and watch the, the dolphins as they surf on the bow wave in front of the boat, and if you're lucky, you'll even see a whale, maybe even a blue whale or a humpback. On other days, the ocean can be bone-chilling cold with waves that rise up off the stern and threaten to join you in the cockpit. And sometimes they do. And it's most scary when that kind of thing happens to you in the dark because there is no dark like the dark of a dark night offshore at sea. The ocean is alive. It can be very fickle. And while the Sea of Galilee can hardly be compared to the Pacific Ocean, it can be very capricious, particularly if you are in its midst and it is night. Add night to the mix and you have the scene for today's gospel lesson, pitch darkness and a seemingly endless expanse of water. Strong wind. It means one thing. It means out of control, confusion and chaos. In the Bible, before God brought order to what he had made, what he had made he called the deep. A watery chaos over which the Spirit of God brooded. Into that deep dark, watery chaos, God speaks His Word, and the waters part, and dry land appears, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. God brings order to chaos. But the day before God does His separating work there, it was a murky, chaotic mass. And dark as well. Darkness adds to the chaos. That's why in Revelation, when God speaks of heaven, there's constant light. And the sea is no more. Not because God hates the sea, but because the sea was a euphemism for chaos. And in heaven, there will be no chaos. But the Sea of Galilee that night wasn't heaven. It was the dark and stormy chaos of hell. If you don't think so, ask the disciples. And it's here in this perfect picture of chaos that Jesus decides to take a walk. Think about that. Into chaos, Jesus decides to take a walk. Right there, if you've got your ears tuned, you realize this is going to end with some good news. Jesus takes a walk into chaos. The boat carrying 12 very worried fishermen is in trouble. Strong headwinds wearied the disciples' arms. They knew they were in danger. And then they see him moving toward them in the dark. Jesus walking on the water. But to see a figure walking on water moving toward them doesn't bring them relief. In fact, they grow even more afraid. It is a ghost, they cry out. And then, as at the creation of the world, over the chaos of the wind and the darkness, they hear a voice. Take heart, 
no, notice the masterful tie-in with Genesis. I, I just think that's brilliant. It is I. Don't be afraid. He knows his children, doesn't he? Take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. That's exactly what we need to hear in the middle of our chaos, isn't it? Take heart. Don't be afraid. It is I. Peter answered with the words, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I can't do it if you don't tell me, Lord, he thinks. But tell me. Come. On one level, it's kind of a dumb thing to say, if it is you. I mean, who would it be at four o'clock in the morning walking on water? It's not Jesus. But on another level, it's a profound statement of faith to not only think it, but to step out in action. Jesus always calls our faith into action. Right. Yes, he does. Thank God it was Peter. Peter's just like each one of us. I've seen that in you, and you've seen it in me. We act in faith, and we act in unbelief at the same time. We say bold things, and we say foolish things, even when it comes to our faith, at the same time. And so Jesus says, come, come. He doesn't use physics to explain to Peter how he's going to make all this work. Peter, before you step out of the boat, I want you to know that what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be arranging the atoms and the molecules, and we're going to... He doesn't do that. He doesn't ask Peter, first, before you step out of the boat, I have this watertight waiver written by my counselor, the Holy Spirit, just in case you get into a little bit of trouble. He doesn't even guarantee Peter it's going to work. Told you, never step out of the boat. Always stay with the boat, boss. He simply says, come. And Peter comes. If you take any boating class, one thing that you will learn is never leave a sinking ship. Now, of course, anybody who stayed with the Titanic would beg to differ, but most small boats don't actually end up sinking. They float upside down at the surface, usually. As bad as it was in the boat, on that dark, chaotic night, the boat was really the only game in town. At least it was safer to be in the boat than with your mouth level with the water. In the boat, You've got to keep on bailing, rather frantically, certainly, and row until your muscles are burning. But considering the, the alternative, the boat's not half bad. Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out of the safety of the boat, and he ventures into the darkness and into the danger. And if he is wrong, he will very quickly find out that he has ventured right into the jaws of death itself. Come, Jesus says. And Peter does. He steps out of the boat and begins to walk toward Jesus. Jesus said, 
the same thing to us, you know. Over other waters, not so long ago, in the waters of the baptismal font, Jesus called out to you, Come. Come to me. Through the waters. And that's what He says to you through His Word. So many times in our lives, just like He did to those twelve disciples in the boat, Come, Jesus says. Usually. Usually when we're afraid and frightened and sick over something. When we're tossed and battered by dark chaos of life. Okay, this is where he's allegorizing. And he's going he's to apply this to us in the way that if you've lived any length of time on this planet, then you know that chaos comes. Whether it's losing your job, you know, a marriage that's gone haywire, you name the circumstance that life has a, you know, all kinds of chaos associated with. And this is the way in which he's going to try to bring it home. Now, watch carefully how he allegorizes differently than Pastor Tiemann. Okay. He'll use similar definitions, but Pastor Hodel's going to stick to those definitions and define sin according to the Ten Commandments. That's where the real difference is. Because there is no Bible passage that tells you you are sinning if you don't live a reckless life. Wondering where in the world we're going to go next. What, what can go wrong now? Where do you go? Where do you go when the darkness of the future and the waves of this chaotic world threaten to swamp your boat? This miraculous story relayed to us by Matthew, who was there in the boat, by the way, and saw all of this with his own two eyes. Matthew has some very important questions, uncomfortable questions, two of them, for us to ask ourselves. What's your storm? What's your storm? And second, what's your boat? What's your boat? What's your storm? What is it right now that tosses you about no less than that storm tossed the disciples? What kinds of headwinds are blowing against you, making your feeble efforts to row against the waves insignificant? What knocks you down and turns your boat turtle? What causes you to, to broach, to round up into the wind, to pitch pull, stern over bow, head over heels, into the trough below? What waves have grabbed you by the chest and wrestled you to the bottom where the wind is knocked out of you by the sand and it pins you there hoping that you will die? What's your storm? Is it your body? Or the body of another person you love who is sick? Is it that the future is so uncertain now, financially or otherwise, is there a cloud hanging over a relationship at home or at work or in church? Is there a storm brewing on the horizon like a hurricane coming your way? You're in the wrong quadrant to be in when the hurricane is coming and there is nothing you can do about it. It is going to hit you. Is there a darkness 
whirling within you that capsizes you inside day after day after day after day and nobody knows about it because you've kept it all inside. What's your storm? And there is a storm, isn't there? When there's a storm, it's our nature to look for a good stout ship with a long, deep keel, plenty of freeboard to offer us refuge from the squall, something to cling to, something to believe in. So, what's your boat? And we've all got our boats too, don't we? Even if you don't have one down in Dana Point Harbor. Your boat is that which you fear, that which you love, and that which you trust above all things. Okay. Notice, same definition of the boat. But Pastor Hodel's going to keep this, in that, this idea in light of the Ten Commandments, whereas Pastor Teeman invented his own commandment, thou shalt not be not reckless. Do you believe your things will save you? Or your job? Or your business acumen? Or your negotiating skills? Some people have the idea that the life jacket of different systems or governments, or the lack thereof, will be the answer to your problems. Are you your own boat? If it is to be, it is up to me. Your own self-sufficiency, that you don't need anyone else. Maybe your boat is made up of other people. Or maybe it is as simple as a sip of courage from a bottle or a few pills or powders when the seas get rough. But don't kid yourself, we've all got our storms, and we've all got our boats. And it would be very good to be very honest, at least with God and with yourself, to give a name to your boat, and to give a name to your storm as well, because out of your boat and through the storm, Jesus calls you to meet him on the water. Are you getting this? Do you have a storm in mind? One that's rattling you? Can you name a boat that you're trusting that's not working? The problem is we spend so much of our time acting as if there is no storm, denying its danger, and pretending that the seas are just fine. And if we have talked ourselves into thinking that our boats will see us through somehow, then we have no need for a Jesus who would call us out of what we think are our safe boats and into the chaos to him. That's why we start every single service off on Sunday mornings by naming our sorry excuse for a ship and our storms as well, naming them to the Lord who calls us to fear no storm and to trust no ship. We like Peter because he's so much like us. Courage to step out of the boat, but fear the storm as well. 
Someone said, you know what Peter was lacking? Peter, Peter should have trusted himself more. Actually, that was the problem. He trusted himself. Trusting himself is his problem. Peter's problem was that he lost sight of the one who bids him come. Peter's problem was that in the midst of the storm, all he could see was the wind and the waves and not the Jesus who called out to him. But storms are like that. They do that to you. And so do diseases. I want to point something out here. And that is, you'll notice, the way he's working the text is that this comes to apply to all of us. We all have these storms. All of us face chaos, the consequences of our sin, famine, war, disease, pestilence. This turns the story into one of that's common to all of our experiences. Whereas Pastor Tiemann, apparently, if you want to walk on the water and experience the impossible, no, it's not what this is about. It's about the storms we all already face. Peter didn't want to experience the impossible. He was, already, he was along with the other disciples, were, he was put into the middle of a tempest, not by choice. And it was his Lord who saw him through it. And financial problems. And the future not panning out the way we planned it to be. They become your world. And the God who lives behind the storm is obscured. And we end up thinking that God just doesn't matter in this. It was that way during the most perfect storm, you know. Not the one that took place in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, but the one that hit on a Friday afternoon on the other side of the Atlantic, outside the, the city walls of Jerusalem. Three bodies were suspended side by side. Finally, people there thought chaos has been averted. The religious authorities, they had their man. They'd strung him up. Soon he'd be dead and the chaos would be calm. But at noon, the sky went suddenly, unexplainedly, chaotically black. The sun hid its face for shame because of the man who hung in the middle. The man hanging in the middle on the middle cross had left the security of his boat. The boat we sing about at Christmas time in the hymn, from heaven above to earth I come, the boat of heaven. He had left the security of the boat and went walking over the waves of this world into the very mouth of death itself. It was a deadly storm he ventured into, and he hoped that there would be another way through it, but there wasn't. And the storm of that Good Friday swallowed him up. It dragged him down into the depths of the grave, and the cables of death ensnared him there. And when he died, Satan howled through the rigging like wind. That'll teach you to walk on the water of my world. That'll teach you what happens when you reach out into the lives of people like Peter. 
That'll teach you to take on any storm of my making. Stay in the boat, Jesus. Go home. Shake with fear. That was on Friday. But Easter Sunday told a different story. Jesus saw through the storm to the one who called him. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And those were good hands indeed. And in the middle of your chaos, those are very good hands for you to be in as well. There is a way through the storm. But it's not by clinging to the different boats we try to float in this life, but by keeping your eyes fixed on the one who has called you. And if you can't see him, Listen to his words as they echo from the baptismal font and from the pulpit and from the altar. Save me, Lord. Save me, Peter cried. And Jesus does. He saves him. Not just on that day when he reached down and pulled him out of the water and into the boat. For you see, there was another day when Peter would cry, Lord, save me. When soldiers nailed him to a cross, Peter, upside down in Rome, and on that cross, Peter died. But Jesus, Jesus heard his cry and saved him. Yes, he did. Saved him out of the storm of death to life everlasting. And he reaches down and he saves you too. He forgives the unfaith that sends us sinking in this life. And he lifts us back into the only boat worth clinging to, the ark of his body, the church. It's wretchedly full of holes, but it's the only game in town. Jesus knows that there are going to be other storms as well for Peter and James and John and Judas and for those in nursing homes and those breathing shallow gasps of air in the hospital. Storms ahead for you. Storms ahead for me. Financial storms. Relationship storms. Storms of intense spiritual struggle that only you will know. No one else. Don't be surprised by the storm. But for heaven's sake, don't be dismayed. Remember this. All those storms are marked with baptismal water. And remember this as well. When the storm hits hard and capsizes your boat and throws you into the water to drown you, He will always be there in the center of the most fierce storm, calling out to you over the wind, Come, trust me, you're safe in my death. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Hmm. Amen. Night and day, light and darkness, truth and error. 
That's how different those two sermons were. One pointed me to Christ. And isn't that what Peter cried out, Lord, save me? That is my prayer as well. Lord, save me. And I think it's yours too. And the good news is that he does. Oh Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness of sins. Therefore you are feared. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, folks, what would you think? We'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.